Welcome to Psychotherapy. This is Jet Dunlap, your host for episode 38. Episode 38 is being done and recorded in a totally different room. If you hear that, don't complain and tell me it sounds different. My God, if you guys knew how many people tell me that stuff. It sounds different because I'm in a different room and I'm on a totally different recording device because Gina has a laptop. I'm going to mention that later in the show, so sorry about the redundancy. <laughs> and, uh... I wasn't able to be in the other room because it was too loud. So I'm coming to you from a remote location right now. This episode, yeah, it's really different because I had to tell you a story that I felt I needed to tell you, but I didn't know why I needed to tell it to you. Now that's happened before. That's not that different, but it's like an origin story. It tells you, it, it's like an origin story. Forget all that other stuff. It's an origin story of where I came from to be with you right now. And it takes a while. Again, I don't know why, I don't know what to tell you, it's just what I feel and I act on what I feel, that's why you're listening the way you do. So, it is what it is, my dad's saying, he always meant that in a negative way, he didn't invent it, but it is what it is, there's nothing you can do about it, is what he said. I'm saying it is what it is because, uh, how could it not be, right? Gosh, what a silly saying. Anyway, this episode is a stream of consciousness, it's about Jet Dunlap, going all the way back to 2001. And it involves a little bit how I met Gina, but mostly it's about why I'm talking to you right now. Anything else I say more than this will just be redundant in telling you the same thing I already said. And I don't want to do that to you because you guys uh, don't have time for that. Your time is precious. So without further ado, here is episode 38 of Psychotherapy. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. The year was 2001. No space odyssey. The iPod 1 had just come out, and it was all the rage. Harry Potter was the big draw at the box office. I was a young budding salesman at Good Guys on Nordoff and Tampa. I had a best friend at the time, and we worked out at the gym constantly. This was powerhouse gym. We used to work out there with Vaskin, who you will remember from earlier episodes. The guy I worked out with, his name was Dave Navarro. Not that Dave Navarro, a different Dave Navarro. Turns out, not a very rare name. He and I would go to the gym after a long shift at Good Guys. My first girlfriend and I had broken up, Sarah. We had lived together in the house that I was now in. I was single, so I was dating. There was a period in my life of about a year or less, thereabouts, that I was single my whole life. Before that, I was in a relationship at 17, even in grade school. And then I had a year off in a relationship for three years, and then Gina. If you missed that one-year window, ladies, uh, you missed your window forever, turns out. So Dave and I were working out, and he worked in the inventory side. I had to stay really good with the inventory guys because if I wanted something from another store, like let's say I sold a Bose, surround sound system. And this thing was going for like $1,800. And in 2001, that was like a billion dollars, give or take. I'm not very good at inflation. <laughs> but uh, he would go get it from another store. And I tipped these guys in storage a ton because they would help me out and they'd take it out to the customer's car and I'd tip them. Anyway, Dave was that guy. I was the sales guy. One day, I was eating a Hot Pocket in the break room. Dave's aunt worked at the Hot Pocket factory. And so she was giving us all the 
the ones that were like odd or not perfect. So we'd take those and then, uh, you know, we'd eat them. They were just in a big plastic bag. They would have thrown them away, but instead they gave them to these guys who worked in a sales department. So I uh, was eating a Hot Pocket and I went over to Dave in the back storage room. I had the code to the back storage room, even though I wasn't supposed to. And I went over to him and I said, hey man, I'm not going to live here anymore. He knew I was a crazy guy. My aunt teaches up there. My uncle is a uh, the librarian, and I'm going. I've always wanted to live in Santa Cruz. I'm single for the first time. I knew that I didn't know how long I'd be single. And I suspected that I'd end up in LA again. So I said, what better time to move than right now? So I carpeted some of that diem, for those of you who watched Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams, RIP. And uh, two weeks from that day, I was gone. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that at this point in your life? Two weeks from that day, an apartment that I had lived in, that I moved all my stuff in, that I had owned up until like 21 years old, was all loaded up, and I just said, I'm going. I didn't have any college fund or any college aspirations. I mean, they said to a dyslexic guy with ADD, you're not going to, this isn't going to happen with you. I was going to Moore Park, so I decided I was going to call my aunt, and uh, I arranged so that I could have my dad's pop-up trailer in her driveway, and I could live in this trailer until I got a job. So being the ambitious little fellow that I was, I went up there first, before any of this internet application stuff, before the radio and all those weird fangled hula hoops. Anyway, I know I'm dating myself here. I did date myself for a little while, and guess what? We loved each other. Because you must date yourself first before you can find the right person. Digression sequence engaged. Okay. So... I moved up there and I stayed in this trailer in the driveway, my dad's trailer. He wanted me to sell it when I was done um, living in it. Pop-up trailer, tent trailer, so soft sides. Moving in the side of my aunt's house. Now, before I even went up there, I went up to Circuit City. This is the point of the not being able to apply online. I went up to Circuit City and told them who I was. I met a guy in the lobby. Pay attention to this, it's good advice. Met a guy when I was walking around in the Circuit City and his name was Rob, Rob Martone. Still very good friends with him. The guy was at my wedding nearly 20 years later. And uh, I said, hey, man, we hit it off. Can I put you as a referral on my resume? I just met that guy that day, but I did. And that helped me get the job. So I had a job waiting for me when I went up to Santa Cruz because I made a pilot trip up there first and I made friends with this guy, Rob. So it was kind of a clever guy. I move up there. I make a bunch of trips back and forth because I couldn't afford a U-Haul and I had a Honda Civic. So back and forth, back and forth. Put the rest of my stuff in storage. Ooh, what a trap that was. All this... Uh, <laughs> hundred dollars or so a month in this giant storage facility in Northridge that ended up putting me in debt very temporarily. Haven't been in debt since 2003, but that at the time had. So I get up to Santa Cruz. This is my dream spot. When I was a kid, this is where my mom and my brother and I would go up to vacation with my aunt KK, Catherine. And uh, it was very special. She always, she was a great aunt and like a second mother to me. She always had fun activities. She loved us unconditionally. She always had just something planned. That wasn't how my family was. We weren't as organized and, I don't know, there's a lot more hatred. That's a Yoda thing. Hate leads to suffering, I think, something like that. Anyway, I don't know why I went Yoda on you, but uh, so I was there a month and a half later, somewhere around there, maybe even less. I'm now a full-time resident of Santa Cruz. I actually registered to vote there. I changed my medical insurance there. I started working out like a fiend and getting in amazing shape, going to the beach every day running. And it was beautiful. Before I went up to Santa Cruz, I started dating this girl, Ashley. 
very loosely, she met me on the set of Friends. Did I mention I worked on the set of the television show Friends? I was like a pre-warm-up. I'd warm up the audience for the warm-up, but I did not get paid for that. I was just a page, but it was a good way to cut my teeth in being able to deal with an audience. So Ashley was the child of the president of the company I worked for. Her mom's name was Missy Elliott, but she wasn't that Missy Elliott, just a different Missy Elliott. And uh, Ashley gave me her number, the daughter. And three months later, I called her back. I was seeing someone else. Again, this was the very brief period of my life where I was single. And she's like, I've heard of not calling someone back for two weeks, which was the swingers rule or something like that. Two months, I don't know what it was. But I waited three months and she was laughing about that. Here's the funny thing. I only called Ashley back because my boss said, hey, Missy, my boss's boss, was wondering why I haven't called Ashley back. So it was like, I was under the gun, man. So, uh, I mean, can I, can I mention the fact that women were not a problem for me at this point? I mean, this is a total ego trip, but I'm going to mention this one girl, beautiful girl, came up to me once and she's like, I'm just watching the moon glisten off your eyes and you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I got hit on hard. So it's funny how I forgot that when I wasn't attractive, but you know, we go through cycles. I was good looking at the time, working out all the time. Anyway, there's no point to that story other than, can you imagine how hot I was? Uh, not a lot of camera phones, so I have like two pictures in that period in life. Ah, well, I guess that's good because then I probably have that old profile picture that people do where it's like, sweetheart, I know that's 10 years old and I'm saying sweetheart to a man. You sexist, you thought I was talking about a woman. I wasn't, it was a guy I was calling sweetheart. So anyway, Ashley and I were dating off and on at the time. I called her back. We kind of went out a little bit and then I moved to Santa Cruz. Coincidentally, she was going up to San Francisco State. So we're like, oh, we should still date each other, you know, loosely. Anyway, so I'm working at Circuit City, working out, hanging out near the beach. Ashley and I are going out. So it's kind of cool because we do one week on, one week off in the sense that I'd go up to San Francisco for like two days. She'd go to Santa Cruz for two days and we'd spend the night. So I could spend a lot of time in San Francisco, which was nice. It's a fine place to visit. Uh, the public transportation, my car got broken into all the time. And the traffic, it was just, ugh, I couldn't do it permanently. Here's where the story's going. One year, it was 2002, been there for a while, Went to school at Cabrillo College, so continuing on my junior college education, made a lot of good friends, having a great time, was sober for uh, over a year, and then <laughs> my AA sponsor, the only time I was actually plugged into AA, my AA sponsor was drunk at a bar once, and I met him, and uh, I relapsed, so that was, uh, that was a tough thing, one of those stories. Anyway, so I was, dr I was drinking, then I wasn't drinking, blah, blah, blah. That's not the point of this tale. That's not the point of this tale, guys. Something amazing happened that year. The Raiders went to the Super Bowl. Now, prior to this, my family had had season tickets to the Raiders, my dad and my mom. We were not rich. We didn't have a lot of money. But my dad, myself, and my brother, and sometimes my mom would do janitorial work on the weekends so we could afford certain things. Mostly it was my uh, and my brother's um, uh, education, so our high school. But also we were able to afford enough to have like season tickets to the Raiders. Not good season tickets, and they weren't outlandish at the time. But we went a lot, so I was a big Raiders fan. I also grew up that way. My grandfather, Pat, was a big Raiders fan. This was in LA at the time. Raiders went to the Super Bowl. It was significant for me. <laughs> I watched them. They lost. And I never watched football again. Can you believe that? That's actually true. I just said, I'm not going to invest my emotional time into something where I have no input on the outcome. I'm like, I can't affect this. So if I'm going to be interested in sports, I'm going to be involved. If I'm going to be interested in money, it's going to be when I'm involved. Because this was just too much of a heartbreak. It felt like losing a family member or something. It was so painful to see them, you know, what do they call it? Um... Was it grab defeat from the hands of victory? Yeah. 
Right after that, I'm I'm acting at the time. I didn't I didn't say that. I'm acting at the time in Cabrillo. I'm acting a bunch of one act plays and plays anything I could do. I was always acting all the way through high school. No fear of stage. Taking a bunch of uh, drama classes, and I'm watching this James Dean movie. I think it was Rebel, and uh, 2002. And I see at the end during the DVD credits. It's just rolling, right? And then at the end of the credits, something else comes up. And uh, it says Jet. Rank. And Jet spelled like my name. I was always kind of had a thing for James Dean as far as his story and everything. Most guys my age who were from L.A. knew about James Dean. Before the internet, that was like the guy he knew about who was the most special actor in the world. And his name was Jet. And this is like two years in me living in Santa Cruz. Ashley was living up in San Francisco, and I said, I need to come back. I need to pursue acting. That's it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come back down to Los Angeles, quit my full-time job at Circuit City, and pursue acting. I've only been up in Santa Cruz for two years. And I did that. I put all my IKEA furniture out. <laughs> what an ambitious little guy. I put all my... I wasn't... I mean, the same size. Little guy. I don't know why. You tell me, professor. But uh, I put all my stuff out near the porch, like the curb, and just got rid of it, came back down, took my stuff out of storage. Ashley came with me. She ended up finishing up school at CSUN. And she helped me enroll in Park College again. And this time I enrolled in theater arts and comedy and auditioning for television and film with a teacher named John Laprino. This is the start of a thing that led me to talking to you right now, but more importantly, yeah, not more importantly, but equally as important for the sake of this conversation. It's how I met Gina. So I'm doing all this stuff and we decide to, we're actually living with her parents out in Long Beach. And I decide to, we decide to move to Northridge. She's going to Northridge and I'm going to go to school in Moore Park. So I do that. And <laughs> I take comedy, I take improv, I take all this stuff and I'm loving it. I'm just natural. It's, it's great. I couldn't be happier. This guy, John, actually worked in film and television because now I'm in Los Angeles. He was in a soap opera for 12 years. So he knew a lot of stuff you're not going to learn when you're in Santa Cruz because Santa Cruz is not a industry town. So this guy was really helpful. He was going to help me with my career. And he liked me. And he thought I had potential. And my future was wide open. You know that song by Tom Petty? That was what it was like. Except that guy gets famous and then he loses it all. I didn't get famous. And, you know, so I didn't lose it all. Anyway, so I go and I'm having a little success. I get in this thing called Club Teen Scene where I'm actually doing this interviewing thing. I'm a host at like 21 years old, 22 years old. And then I find out that John Leprino is going to start casting for a play, for a play at Moore Park College while I live out in uh, Northridge. And he says, Jet, you should go out for the lead, <laughs> the lead of uh, Carl. I was about to say Carl because I was thinking Lenny and Carl from The Simpsons, but uh, not Carl. <laughs> Lenny was the name of the other guy, of Mice and Men. So George, I was he wanted me to go out for George. But I was always afraid of lead roles because of my dyslexia and I, I didn't think I could uh, memorize all that stuff. But he said, you should do it anyway, dude. You're the best. You look at, he just had all the faith in the world in me. So I read for, uh, <laughs> hey, Carl. Um, that's Barney saying Carl to, I don't know. That's a Simpsons thing. Not what I'm talking about. Jesus, Jet, stay with it here, buddy. I'm on a different audio source because uh, Gina has my laptop. She's doing an open house at a... Uh, piece of real estate out in uh, 
Simi Valley for your information in case you're curious. So I'm a little distracted. I'm in a different room. So I read for George in Of Mice and Men. And I read with this girl named Abby Carruthers. I read with her and I started stumbling over all the words and people thought it was because I thought she was so sexy. But it wasn't. I just had dyslexia and I was having trouble. So they thought it was chemistry and they're like, John, the director is like, wow, this is perfect. Jet should be this role. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I want to. Anyway, I end up being a curly uh, in, in the play, the guy who ends up like going after Lenny, if you're familiar with Of Mice and Men, I'm this aggressive dude and uh, blah, blah, blah. So the lead role that Abby was reading for was Curly's wife. It's really the only female role in the play. So it was the desired one. And these are all a bunch of wannabe starlets out here in Moore Park, beautiful, beautiful women. And uh, at the time, Playboy had rated, from what I understood, I actually hadn't read it. And that's not just lying. I just didn't read Playboy. They were rated the number two most attractive females in a junior college. I don't think you get away with that now. But it was a beautiful, beautiful school full of beautiful women. Say that to say that a lot of them wanted to be actresses. So it was a very coveted role. And uh, so I had read this with Abby. Abby's going out for this role. The next day I come in for casting for another day. And I pretty much figured out what role I'm going to have. This is when I am in the stands of the theater. I forget the name. It's been a while. And I see Gina. And she's reading. And this was like one of them movies, you see. One of them movie shows. I don't know if I heard her first or if my head was turned by the hands of fate. But something happened. And I looked at her. I saw her on stage. And I said, wow. Wow. She's wearing a short skirt and high heels. And uh, she wore that a lot. And she was just unbelievable. I'm like that. I have to I have to know that chick. And so I started working out like crazy. I got in amazing shape. I had a six pack. I started pursuing Gina. We started working on the play together. I ended up breaking up with Ashley. Surprise, surprise. And I ended up dating Gina. I ended up moving in with my parents for about a month and then finding an apartment. But that's how I met Gina. That's, I saw her and she was playing Curly's wife. I was playing Curly, fate. We had a matinee once and it was a bunch of kids from local schools and they're like, are Jet and Gina dating? And uh, the director's like, of course, of course they are. Look at them, look at that chemistry. You know, she's murdered and uh, spoiler alert for Mice and Men. But that's how I met her. And then shortly thereafter, I decided I wanted to make more money so I could provide a better life for us. That story almost went in a certain direction, but it didn't. Started working at AT&T, made a bunch of money. We got an apartment, blah, 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 blah. But that is why you're hearing from me today. I was thinking about that story today and I thought, a lot of times my life is decoding things in front of me, extrapolating information from the moment mixed with the voices in my head. <laughs> I've already explained to you what that means, but if I haven't, that means my instinct, my intuition, and my thoughts. So I'm not actually hearing, huh, what, what's that you say? Killed them all? Oh, I can't. That was a pretend voice in my head and seen. So it's not like an actual voice that I can audibly hear. I'm not cuckoo nuts, but uh, I act on that intuition like when I saw Jet rank on that screen and decided to uproot my life again and come down. Wouldn't be with Gina if I hadn't done that. So many things in the Plinko machine. Remember Plinko? That was uh, Price is Right. So many things in the Plinko machine had to go in a certain direction for me to meet that woman. And then that's why I'm here today, talking to you. Because if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I am now, living with Gina over this big piece of property. 
in my little tiny home. And I don't know why I was harping on that, but I kept thinking maybe the decoding is for them this time. I guess the biggest story out of this, and this is one of those episodes where I'm figuring it out as I go along, but these uh, sometimes are some of the more interesting ones. As far as I'm concerned, and I am a listener, and I'm my number one fan. I mean, I have Jet tattooed on my back. That is a fan of this show. You ever seen it? Uh, you can look it up on uh, Facebook or Instagram. So I was thinking about how I pay attention to that voice in my head. I guess this is why. I saw an article the other day that was talking about how you become wealthy. And there's the road that most people do, which is, I think it was called like rising through the ranks of work. Uh, and of course, it starts if you're not born wealthy into a wealthy family. But let's not even say wealth. Let's say fulfill your dreams. And usually when you're fulfilling your dreams, money comes with that. Because unless your dream is to be a social worker or a um, work with the Peace Corps, which is perfect and amazing, and thank you for doing that, usually people's dreams involve some kind of financial wealth. Because all that means is comfort. It's a ticket to a better life. That's all it is. It's not like you want a bunch of green things that are absolutely useless and a construct in a construct of a bank. But... It makes life more comfortable. I've talked about the central air thing. It's it's a lot easier to be a person who has money than not. But one of the other ways to make money other than working a job or doing all this other stuff was the dreamer. And they talked about how these dreamers have such a low percentage of success, but the average person who goes into dreaming of starting their own business, this is amazing as far as millionaires, starting their own business or going into film and television, their average work week was 60 hours. But by the time they're like 45, they're making $7 million or they are worth $7 million. I can't remember. Either way, that's a big difference, right? But either way, if you become a successful actor, musician, whatever, dreaming, there was a lot of money in that. Those people are acting on a voice that they hear. Something that's in their chest, in their head that keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. Jet, move to Santa Cruz. Why? I still am not exactly sure what that did, but I don't get to look at my entire timeline from a vantage point that makes sense to me right now, right? I don't have that above earth, above all of this kind of viewpoint usually. But I moved up there and then I moved down because of something that said, move down through James Dean and that DVD. Now, am I acting like a child? Am I not being serious? A lot of people would think that, I think less so than now, but back then it was that idea of like, you're crazy, why would you do that? I quit my job at at t during the recession. I was making more money than anyone. Everyone's like, don't do that. But whenever someone tells me not to do something, I always question it because if the prevailing idea is to stay with something, I think, well, they're just doing that based on their past, their parents' past, their parents' past, their parents' past, their parents' past, and that cycle is just going to repeat itself. So my instinct was always like, well, reject that jet because that is just going to be a straight line of birth and death. And, uh, and I don't think that's perfect. I don't think that's the answer. But so all these little voices move me into this place, right? And then move me into acting and then move me into, whew, drinking and then move me into sobriety and then move me into having that interview with Ken after my grandfather died and then started me on this podcast. I talk about this podcast as if I'm winning a podcasty or whatever it is and I'm telling someone about the success and how many people I've helped. As far as I know, that hasn't happened, but it feels that way. Isn't that weird? I think the feeling comes first and the success comes second because I feel as if this is a thing that's very important. I feel compelled to do this. So for instance, I was talking about it earlier. Gina has my laptop. Gina's dad is in town and the way our property is, it's two acres. They have a big house. Then we have a tenant's house. And then her uncle lives in another house. And then we have our side of land, which is big, but we share the shop, the workshop. We don't all need it. It's huge. And um, 
I operate the show usually out of that basement, but Thomas, Gina's dad, is upstairs working, so the audio is leaking. So I went into another back guest house, which is like a Airbnb house. A lot of places here. I'm in the back guest house for the first time talking on this, but I felt so compelled to talk to you that I had to do it wherever I could on my Tascam audio, my separate audio, not on a standard um, garage band or what I use as far as my laptop. So the audio is going to sound different, but I felt I had to talk to you right now about this. It was just acting on something I felt inside that was so strong. It's almost like a heat that in order to release that tea kettle from boiling over, I had to pour myself into something. That's going to be stand-up, life coaching, standing on stage, helping people in seminars, a larger group than this right now. Maybe not, because who knows how many people the podcast goes out to, but a live group, and then writing films and directing and acting and all that stuff, and it sounds very ambitious, right? But everything that I've ever felt and acted on that is this strong has led to its kind, and I've never felt as strongly about this. Now, let me talk about the flip side to that. Denial. Not just a river in Pacoima. My little brother, Stephen, he is 20 years at Trader Joe's. I think it's this year, 20 years at Trader Joe's. He and I were talking the other day, and my God. When he talks to me, I think it's just because he's trying to download his day onto me, but he is not as concerned with narrative as I am. And I love the guy. We're very close as far as... <laughs> emotionally grew up in the same house so we have that experience and um so we understand each other fundamentally but we couldn't be more different right a lot of people just talk because they want to share their stories with people but the stories aren't necessarily entertaining and they're not trying to be entertaining i am trying to be entertaining when i'm talking to people because that's the only reason i want to open my mouth because life is short and uh you know try and be entertaining <laughs> great message jet that's not exactly going to be a quote on facebook after you're dead anyway or whatever it is robot book Robot books, so that's where robots meet each other. Yeah, it's probably likely. Anyway, enough predicting the future. I've done a lot of video projects. My ambition was not to do another thing I have to edit. You know the story. Ken and I did this interview. He talked to me about substance abuse. He talked to me about my delirium. And uh, Gina and I were driving home, and I'm like, I have to tell my story. Better or worse. Interested or not interested, this is something that needs to happen. And so that's where it started. And that's how you're hearing it. And if it means something to you, I just gave you a insight into what brought me there. And I think sometimes the stories that I don't know where they're going to go or what purpose they have in the grand scheme of things or what purpose they're going to have on your life, if any, other than entertainment value to listen to a little narrative, I don't get to judge that. Like right now, I'm kind of being put in a certain directions that I'm not denying and I'm going with the flow. I remember my just genius, Dr. Steve Nelson. And he said, picture your life whenever you go off track as a train that went off track. Close your eyes, right? And uh, putting that train back on track. And he talked about life being a river and that we need to go with the flow. This is not going to shock. You've heard this before, right? When I'm doing my best in life, and let's just stick with the facts here, it is when I feel like I'm going with that flow. And the funny thing about that is, just like right now, where I don't have the evidence of the conclusion of what I'm doing right now. I don't have, you know, I helped this guy over the weekend who was addicted to a drug and, and I got him a meeting and I just saw today that he's doing better. I can be an instrument in that when I go with the flow, an instrument to help people, an instrument for change. And then other people will come into my life and they're an instrument for change. So people that I would have never guessed coming into my life, I've been running into. And when I'm in that flow state, I feel that happening. 
And I picture myself in that stream. And one of the things that really drives my ego crazy or my old brain is that I'm like, well, where is this going? What do I need to do? How do I interfere? But that's the problem with the river, right? Anything I try and do to interfere with the path that I'm being pushed into would be to slow down or redirect the path I'm intended. And I believe that. I don't know that that's fate. I think that predestination of everything that you do is probably false because I'm in this river, but I can choose to get out of this river. I've gotten out of this river a bunch of times and so have you. But right now while I'm in it, things are happening. But the problem is because I don't have that vantage point I was talking about earlier from all the way in the sky, I don't get to see where the river ends up or where, I don't think it's as important where it ends up. I think this is perpetual and eternal and maybe even goes over multiple lifetimes, depending on what you believe in, depending on what I believe in. I don't know, I've never been there. Maybe I have, I don't know still. I pick up all these experiences and all these other people and I know it's the right direction, but my brain when it's weak, when I'm tired, when I'm sad, whatever, I go, what are you doing, Jet? You're putting all your efforts into podcasting, pays you zero dollars, that's zero. You're going into stand-up comedy. It's costing you money. It's not making you money. But I've saved money for this exact thing. Save money for when something tells me I should start working on what I believe I was put here for, and that's this. But I have doubt. Even as strong as this impulse is to make me have 38 episodes of a show and get on stage after 40 years, I still have doubts. So if you have doubts about what you're doing and you're just starting out, don't be surprised. I think that's a part of this. I think that's probably why fate isn't definite because I can get out of this river. I can dry myself out and go do something stupid. Or I can be in this river and see a bar and take that trip and go drink. I could go cheat on my wife. Have never, will never. But if I chose to, I could divert myself from this stream and then the results of that would happen. I would never know where the river was gonna take me. But when you're in the river, the desire as a human animal creature is I go, what is this? Why is this? I wanna know. It's not like having a job where you go, Hours plus money plus time plus education plus uh, knowing when to ask for what you deserve will get you promoted and eventually X amount of dollars. I don't have that kind of a life. And a lot of people don't, especially in the arts. I'm banking on something. And until that's proven, it sounds crazy, right? Maybe not to everyone, but sometimes to me. Some people may doubt the things I say on this show. They may doubt the last episode where I felt like I was put as an instrument of change in this guy's life. That's fine. You will never doubt it as much as I do at my dark points. Oh, yesterday I ran 14 miles. Haven't run 14 miles in like four years. I just did it because my friend Michelle was calling me and she was telling me about what she's struggling with. And I thought, well, if there's people struggling with things out there, how hard am I not pushing myself? You know, double down on her resolve and what she can do to make her life easier. And I'm like, well, take your own advice. How much harder can you push yourself? Right? And I ran 14 miles. I'm like, well, let's see how far this body can take me. And I could tell all of those stories of achievement to try and sell you on the jet on that product of what I've overcome, what I'm able to do. I could tell you all those things if I was trying to get you to buy into the jet on that program, right? But that's not important. I'm going to tell you what I do and what I doubt. I would skip the doubt if I'm just trying to sell you. I would say, oh, and I've never had a day of doubt. I've never felt anything but strong and confident. I feel like Superman. It's not how I feel. I doubt all the time, even though I know I'm on the right track. I doubt and I know. So I know I'm there, but that doesn't mean I feel any different. Or it doesn't mean that I always feel I'm doing the right thing. And not in the right sense of morality. That's not the issue. The right thing for why I was put on this earth. Have you met someone who's fulfilling that? Have you ever felt that way? That you're in the direction of what you are put on this earth for? Why do I care about that so much? 
if you're listening to the show and you feel the same way, you probably know already, but it's because I got to see as a very young person how temporary life is and that the utilization of this amazing human creature that I am right now to its fullest extent, stretching the envelope of the experience of this human is why I'm here. And a part of that for me as Jet Dunlap in this time period is to influence and help as many people as I possibly can to understand the information that I've been so lucky to get in my own special and unique way, which is the show. I also mentioned last time that if you guys weren't listening, I wouldn't do this. I feel that you're listening. Cuckoo, cuckoo, Jet's a cuckoo bird. How does he feel people are listening? My internal parrot. I just know it, right? Like I knew I could run 14 miles. That's a perfect example. The faith came first, the results came second, right? A lot of people I know, even people very close to me, want the results first and the faith second. The lights aren't all going to turn green. When I started that run, I started trying to go for two or three or four miles, and I kept going. But I thought I could make it, right? And that's not some epic journey that takes a whole lifetime, but it's still an example. I know you're listening. I know you need to hear this. So today was a crazy, brainstormy, kind of weird thing I just felt compelled to say. So much so that I'm doing it in a place I've never done it before. But I don't argue with that instinct. And that is great because that can take you in exciting and different, weird places. Have you ever read a biography about a person worthy of having a biography? It's that little voice that becomes louder at different times. That little feeling, that flow state that moves a person in a direction. And then they get to where they're going and they're like, my God, I kind of always knew it would happen. I had just enough faith to take me to the next step. Oh my God, have I been there before? Last year, my back was nearly broken from moving 90 pound bags, 90, 90 pound bags into a cement mixer at my grandparents' house where I watched my grandfather aging and dying, where I was being eaten by mosquitoes, where that person in my family said the most atrocious thing to me and my wife and threatened my wife. Worst time ever last year. But I had enough faith to keep going. I had enough faith to be here right now. I had enough faith to be able to talk to you right now. And my wife always goes, I don't like those episodes where you become too personal development-y, too speaker-y, too Tony Robbins-y maybe. That's not what I'm intending to do. I'm getting more charged up because uh, it's over 365 days that I've been believing in something that I didn't see the evidence of and that makes me proud of myself. The 23rd of next month, I will have been sober for two years. And as a sober person, I felt every single one of those days acutely and I'm proud of myself. And you need to be proud of yourself too. If not already, if you are already, that's great. Share that with people. And if not, start. I really appreciate you listening to this episode. I'm not going to apologize for it. It was a little different. They usually are. <laughs> Thank you so much. My name is Jet Dunlap. This is Psychotherapy. Thank you for listening.